electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Diane Brian Sullivan in for Kelly once again. And here is what is ahead. Is the great American consumer finally about to crack retail sales down big? But we have a guest who says there are still ways to make money in the good old U.S. of A. Call it the big swap. Investors selling Tesla, buying NVIDIA. But one investor says that may be about to change. And of course, the action, the story, the trade on three more big stocks, including one your guest says has a great setup to buy into the print. That is all ahead in earnings exchange. And that is all ahead across the hour. But we are going to leave the hour with some new data on the economy and a surprise on retail sales. But as Steve Leisman is here to tell us, it's not the good kind of like, yay, I got a surprise kind of thing. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Pretty amusing. That's right. So here's what's going on, Brian. U.S. growth forecasts for the first quarter are coming down, though they still remain relatively strong. And that's after a series of downside surprises in economic reports today. Here's the data. Retail sales missing uh, instead of uh, the zero minus zero three expected it was minus zero eight. Take out autos and the miss was actually greater minus zero six versus a positive point two that was expected. Industrial production uh, also missing down a tenth versus up two tenths. Both retail and IP could have been somewhat hurt by weather disruptions uh, in January. Philly Fed manufacturing, though, um, surprising on the upside and business inventories coming in in line. So let's put it all together. Uh, Let's do the CNBC wrap it up through the average of uh, tracking forecasts on the street. Q1 coming down. Zero four, it's two and a half percent. So that's still pretty strong. And remember, we had that surprisingly strong fourth quarter. That's holding up, but down a tick at three point two percent. Count your lucky stars, folks. U.S. growth has held up relatively well compared to the rest of the world, where we got news today showing several large economies reporting a second negative quarter of growth in a row. Here's the data from the U.K. and Japan, which we convert, by the way, to an annual rate so you can compare it at home with the U.S. U.K. down 0.4 percent at an annual rate versus minus 1.2 in Q4. Japan down 3.3 versus minus 0.4 in the fourth quarter. Okay, there's some apparent weakness in the U.S. consumer Brian alluded to that at the top of the show. But overall, the U.S. has been at the head of the growth pack among developed countries in this post-pandemic recovery. But the latest data does raise questions about how much what we call here Fortress USA can withstand amid challenges both within and without. Brian? I guess that's going to be the question we're going to answer in this next segment. So, Steve, stick around because your next guest says it's amazing how it works out on TV. Mm -hmm. He says it and then we do it. America is still the best place to be right now, but a contraction is coming. The question is more when, not if. And then what do you do to position against all of that? Joining us now is Brian Weinstein. He is the head of global markets at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Steve is still with us as well. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. UK, Japan in recession. Uh, Germany's probably next. The U.S. appears still to be by far the best house in any neighborhood globally, I think. Agreed. 
And it's priced that way, right? You can see it. The U.S. stock market continues to handily uh, beat uh, most others. We could look at Japan well, maybe Japan, a little bit differently. Japan's Japan, a weird, I mean, Japan's, it's soaring yeah, but as they go into recession. I think when you look at the U.K. and Japan and a little bit of Germany, it's a reminder that your policy decisions have a long tail. They're long, mm-hmm. and these aren't happening. bad things happening. It's something that happened yesterday. The global economy is, is doing okay. The U.S. is doing better because it's been doing by, buoyed by deficit spending and low interest rates. The U.K., obviously, Brexit continues to be a, yep. a, a lead weight. Japan has major demographic issues. So the U.S. will continue to do better for a while, but I think the deficit spending and the higher interest rates they're still out there, and when you look into the second half of the year, you can see more spikes. I think there's a great lesson here, too, and I think Steve would agree and can just jump in that what we're seeing in Japan and even the U.K. market has not been terrible. The stock market and the economy can oftentimes, Brian, be very, very different things, correct? I mean, yeah, look at Japan, right? It touched its all, you know, 1989, back to, you know, a couple days ago, it's back to its all-time high, but it's not helped the average consumer there because wage, wages haven't kept up with inflation with a weak currency. So it's a, it's a policy decision for, uh, you know, it's been very good for corporations and not as good for Main Street. Steve, is, is bad-ish news, good-ish news for markets, given what Brian just talked about in terms of Fiscal and well, monetary the markets, policies. The markets get <clears throat> the data has to has to um, tell us what happened, and the markets get to price uncertainly what is going to happen. And every uh, thing I saw today said that that J- Japanese number is something that was probably going to be relatively soon in the rearview mirror, and they'll return to growth. The UK, I'm not so sure about. I feel like they have structural issues. Brian, I think, was absolutely right to point to the structural demographic issues in Japan. But the UK structural issues having to do with Brexit, I think, are more uh, persistent here. I'm not sure how they kind of work their way out of the current funk that they're in right now. Um, I think monetary policy is doing the best job it can. Look, UK had the high inflation and no growth. We've had the high inflation and growth. That's been an incredible strength here. What I'm thinking about, uh, Brian, I wonder if Brian, might, the other Brian might answer this question. The U.S. is generally one that is, Fortress USA is used in part as a, as an, as a moniker because the U.S. is not incredibly dependent upon the rest of the world. But the, the issue becomes if the rest of the world uh, does go down in a, in a bigger way, whether or not the U.S. can withstand that, I think at some point you get some cracks in the walls. No, Steve, I think that's right. I mean, listen, you can't have China slowing and the UK slowing, Germany slowing, Japan right. slowing, and, and have nothing bad happen here. And I, I do think... Jump in. I'm sorry to interrupt. Is China slowing or is China imploding? <laughs> it's always hard to tell with, with their data. I well, mean, listen, they, they're, they're, they're cutting off the flow of data. A lot, a lot of the data we used to get in their equivalent of a Bloomberg terminal, is ne- it's called wind, is now no longer available. No longer there. We don't, how do we even know what's yeah. going no, it's, on? There? It's very hard to say. Although you could probably, if they were really imploding, you'd see it in, in some of the import data. I mean, there'd be some signs, right? It's a big economy. You can't just disappear. At least we hope not. So well, no, Evergrande uh, and Country Garden disappeared. No doubt. And so their structural issues are coming to, to a head, too. Again, I just want to point out our structural issues are still exist, right? Our deficit spending is too high. Our interest uh, spend on, on, uh, on, on treasuries is, is going up. Uh, so our, ours will come around. I don't think we should celebrate too hard um, the structural issues elsewhere. I think China has a lot of things it can still do to help. Uh, but as you say, this time around, it's not as easy. And, and you and your season. team's job, though, is to help your clients make money and preserve wealth and grow wealth That's off right. of all the, the known data you've got. So what are we doing now? 
Listen, I think what you're supposed to do is understand the U.S. has been the winner, and it's broadly in the price, right? This is an all-time low for international equities versus the U.S. in terms of valuation. Um, I, I do think it's, it's broadly priced in, so it is a time to start thinking about contrarian things, right, to start to inch your way into uh, non-U.S. equities. Uh, you don't have to buy the U.K. I mean, Japan equities have done great, but you need a diverse basket away from, I think, the stocks that have gotten us here, because I think a year from now, uh, we'll look back, and, and as Steve said, the, the market will have priced in a different Steve, outcome. Steve, I don't know about you, but I think you and I need to take like a week, 10-day trip to Japan, just kind of poke around on our own, an official CNBC visit, find out what's working, what's not, explore some of the back streets of Roppongi to figure out what exactly is going on in some of these large economies, or maybe London. I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you, Brian, but I want to tack on India to that, and I want to throw that out to Brian. Mm. India has been the flavor of the month, and I've been doing this for 30 years, Brian, and it seems like Every time India becomes the flavor of the month, they find a way to sour the taste and they, they, they snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Brian, are you investing as if this India story is real this time? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. India's been one of those that, that's tricked us a few times. Um, listen, India India looks more real this time. Um, it certainly looks more real, I think, okay. uh, with investors thinking that China may not be as real as it, as it was. So, yeah, I think India right. is part of that international equity conversation, a meaningful part. I think, you know, just a personal anecdote, which nobody can, cares about, Steve, I'll say this. I, Back before I got into TV, when I was, I was yeah. trading chemical commodities, and I would trade with Japan, and I would trade with India. Here's the right. cool thing. China, we'd get screwed over. You couldn't find anybody to sue. They would just vanish. These hidden India uses right. British rule of law. Contracts are enforced. Their economy is now bigger than than China. They've got some of the world's best technical universities. Still got a lot of problems. Obviously, a lot of poverty, a lot of energy woes, Steve. But to your point, if we, I, you wonder, maybe this is like a bigger segment we should do someday, Steve. Which is like, is India the new China, but with rule of law? That it would be it would be huge if India would not become essentially it gets into these xenophobic rates. But Brian, I want to jump in our private plane. Notice how I switched to a private plane. How we're going to be traveling? You're buying. And I want to throw two more things out to Brian Weinstein. So 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 uh, put, put the seatbelt on. Here we go. I'm interested in Southeast Asia as the China alternative. And then there was the story the other day that I think it was Musk was working with Mexico to bring some production over to China. So what's your take on all that, Brian? Oh, and, and everyone just moving things out of China. Listen, I think it's a long, another long tail, slow um, outcome. I, I don't right. think, yeah, listen, you can look at what the Mexican peso's done, right? I mean, investors are ahead of this one. There are certainly some, some winners. Um, but, but again, I think we're, we're inexorably linked to China. Those, uh, those, those supply chains aren't going to change overnight. Um, long term, there's some winners and some losers. But again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get carried away with that story right here. But, so you're not telling people to dump any exposure to China, because we did the other day on, on my show, it's 7 o'clock, by the way, tune in, it's called Last Call, that's my fee for doing this show, <laughs> which is NVIDIA is now larger than the 82 companies that make up the entire Hong Kong Hang Seng Index combined. Yeah. Does yeah. that tell you, other than being just a weird and cool stat, does that tell you anything about the state of China's economy or the global economy? Because we, I think it's fair to say, and it won't be a popular political opinion, we need China to do well in many ways. I agree. Listen, I think it tells you a lot, right? It tells you about investor sentiment, right? And the money has 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 uh, left that uh, that area. It tells you that 
historically, when we get this type of concentration in a few names, you are paid, uh, not immediately, but over a 12 or 18 month period uh, to diversify into other things. So if you don't like international equity, you can certainly look at the 93 stocks in the NASDAQ that, are, that aren't the MAG-7. Huh. Um, but there are lots of ways what? you can diversify. There, there are other there, stocks I, in the I, NASDAQ? I, I used to be a bond guy, but this is what I've been taught as, you know, as, I've, looking, as I've gotten to look at equities more. There are more. It's, it's truly amazing. If only somebody would focus on those other 3,500 or whatever stocks that exist. One day. Brian Weinstein, Steve Leisman, great discussion. We covered, we literally the covered the globe. We're like wide world of stocks. Okay, can I come on your trip? Uh, yeah. Well, Steve <laughs> says okay because it's his jet. All right. So if he lets you on, we, we need a pretty big one too. A Taylor wait, Swift. wait. I, I, thought, I thought you had the jet. Oh, you know what, Brian? Who's on first? Brian Weinstein, you can, you can come. Brian Weinstein, you can come. You just pay for gas, okay? <laughs> yeah, no you just problem. have to pay for the gas and the wings. <laughs> Guys, right. thank you. All right, by the way, we're going to get another read on the economy tomorrow from Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on a show called Money Movers. All right, on deck. Selling Tesla, buying NVIDIA. But is it time to flip that trade? Jeff Kilberg's call next. Plus, Nat Gas crashing. How low can it really go? We'll speak with the head of the country's largest nat gas producer, EQT, and that is CEO, Toby Rice. Stick around. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. Let's get some new info on what retail traders are doing right now. Some investors apparently scaling back, buying the MAG-7 post-earnings. But then that little dip that we just had apparently brought back in some hungry traders. Let's find out more on some of the retail trends. Kate Rooney with us for today's Tech Check with more on some of the names being targeted. Kate. Hey, so yeah, so that market sell-off we saw on Tuesday ended up being a buying opportunity for a bulk of individual traders out there with the strongest level of buying we've seen since December among that retail crowd. As Vanda Research said in a note today, animal spirits, as they put it, are alive and well. The breadth of buying, so essentially the diversity of stock purchases, was wide, which tends to suggest more optimism out there. But traders are especially optimistic on semiconductor stocks. So AMD and NVIDIA have seen a surge in retail inflows this year, outshining, if you can believe it, Tesla. Tesla has been a longtime investor favorite. It's seen its share of total traded value drop to the lowest level in two years. It is still the most widely held name by individuals. Lately, though, investors have been much more actively buying into chip names with less interest, as you can see there on the chart in Tesla. NVIDIA earnings are a big catalyst. Chipmaker reports next week there's been a surge in options activity ahead of that with call turnover hitting 
levels we haven't seen since last summer's AI buying frenzy. That is a sign that investors think the stock is heading higher in terms of call options. Vanda also points out that NVIDIA is heavily crowded at this point, could see some exhaustion moment in momentum rather over the next four to six weeks after earnings. Overall, call options have also picked up notably, according to Vanda, in recent weeks. Speculative options trading still well below that 2021 peak, but it does indicate a bit of a return to risk appetite in the markets. Brian, back over to you. Interesting stuff. And today's tech check, Kate Rooney. See you later. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So your next guest is not bailing on Tesla. In fact, he is buying more of it, calling it superior to NVIDIA, NVIDIA rather, as a long-term AI play and saying that recent underperformance just means maybe more opportunity to get in. Joining us now is Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial CEO and a CNBC contributor. So if people had been selling Tesla to buy NVIDIA, you think the best thing to do is to invert that because you've probably made a lot of money on NVDA. Well, let's be clear, Sully. I'm long NVIDIA and I'm loading up here on Tesla. But I think you're absolutely right. When you look at NVIDIA, it's three times the size of Tesla from a market cap perspective. It's now the third largest. But the parabolic move in NVIDIA, if you look at a chart here, just since January, up 50%. And this is not up 50% from where it was cut in half in 2022. This is substantial. This was a nearly a trillion-dollar company. Now to be up where it is, I think it can go from 750 It has to back and fill. So I think with earnings expectations, Think about it, Sully. The earnings expectations for revenue for NVIDIA are over $20 billion. That's three times. That's 3x what it was just a year ago from Q4. So I think there's high expectations. I know they're printing money right now, but I think there's a pullback short term. You're seeing RSI levels overbought, but Tesla seems to be a different type of AI approach. And I know it's the MAG 7. It's not getting any love right now. It's about to trade 200 today, so we are seeing some buyer step in. But nonetheless, Sully, I think we have to understand there's huge opportunity in Tesla here, and I think you have to profit take in NVIDIA. Yeah, and I want, you know, you don't want all the, we call them Teslarians. I guess, what do we call the NVIDians? You don't want the, I think I just made that up. You you don't want the NVIDians coming at you. You still love the company, but I I get the mentality, which is, you know, everybody's like, oh, drop Tesla. It's not Mag 7, it's Super 6 or Spectacular 6 or whatever name they want to employ to it. I get your take, and being a smart trader is trying to find the opportunity when, when other people are selling. That's right. And I'm utilizing options to define my risk. I'm selling a risk reversal here in Tesla, selling the 185 March regular expiration, buying the 200 call. But I think you have to realize, just take a step back, Sully, not to get too wonky here, but from an AI perspective, I know we are really seeing Tesla viewed as more of a cyclical car company. I know it has a tech influence, but think of the spend. NVIDIA got a lot of press for buying SoundHound. They made a $4 million with an M million dollar investment in that rate now this year in 2024 tesla is going to spend 10 billion dollars on their ai development so i think from the longer play i think you're going to see tesla back and fill up to 300 dollars i have you have to really put the emotion aside on elon musk you never know what's going to happen or what tweet's going to come out but i think from a true value from a true trade perspective this is a great pairs trade going in next wednesday where i think you will see a reprieve or a relent in the price in the video Jeff Kilberg, got a macro view on the markets right now? I, we just talked about two of the most important stocks that are out there, but do you have sort of a, a macro view? Are we ever going to see this broadening out that some people are talking about, that you know, all the 3,000 other public companies that exist will finally get a little love? I think that it is coming, and I know Ryan Dietrich talked about this morning on Twitter about this small cap explosion. If you see a breakout in small caps, that's the breath you're looking for. But bigger picture, Sully, we can grapple about when – 
or even talk about if how many points are going to be cut. But we are going to see a rate cut this year in 2024 of 100 basis points. And that's coming. I don't care if it comes in March, May, or June, but that's coming. And that, that's why you saw those animal spirits that Kate referred to. You're seeing people trying to buy, utilize that $8 trillion in cash. They're trying to get it to work because they've been chasing. And the bears continue to be in the hurt locker. That's just a fact. So I think there's more room to run to the upside. I think we're going to test back and fill here to this 49.50 level in the S&P 500. But we're going to make new highs, I think, next month. New highs, maybe next month on the tape. Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial. Always appreciate your views, my man. Thank you. Thanks, Sully. All right, quickly, let's get a check on shares of Wells Fargo because they were having their best day since June of 2022 after the Office of the Controller of Currency lifted a key penalty from its 2016 fake accounts scandal. Wells Fargo shares up 6.4%. Good day for them. Coming up, R. Allen Stanford. Remember him? He had a $7 billion Ponzi scheme. It was exposed 15 years ago, but insanely... Some of his victims are still waiting to see relief. Well, today could be a big step in that direction. Scott Go will bring us the story on a name is a blast from the past. First, a look back at the deadly winter storm that hit Texas three years ago today. Is the power grid still as vulnerable as it was back then? That is next. The exchange is back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, big potential news in the energy space. The House expected to vote as early as today to reverse President Biden's recent freeze on new liquefied natural gas projects. While that bill is likely to die in the Senate, if it does pass the House, the move shows the division over it. Shocker. Now, if you have not been following natural gas, you should be. It is crashing down more than 37 percent since that LNG pause announcement late January. But U.S. production is still soaring. Let's talk more about all of this with the largest player in natural gas in America. Joining us now is Toby Rice, CEO of EQT. I thought I'd see you in Houston in a few weeks, but glad to see you here in, in the middle of the day. Toby, good to have you on. What the heck is going on with natural gas? Well, it's a pretty simple story. Uh, we're a little bit oversupplied. Uh, winter did not show up, and we've got some some higher production volumes. Um, that's led to low prices, and it's going to be a little bit bumpy uh, for the next six to nine months. But, you know, Brian, the, the good news is uh, we think this uh, will recover, and 2025 is looking to be pretty constructive on prices. Yeah, the weather certainly has helped out. Supply has helped out. It's kind of a massive, you know, combination. Without dipping your toes into politics too much, you know, the energy secretary and others I spoke at the White House said that this this pause will not affect current projects, that we're still going to double LNG exports over the next two to three years, even with this, quote, pause. But that it certainly could impact, you know, things like Venture Global's second terminal, Commonwealth in Houston and, and very far sort of future ish projects. How do you see it? Well, for the people that say that this does nothing, then what is the point? Um, this is purely a political stunt to garner votes. And when it comes to something as serious as energy, that uh, entire modern civilization is dependent on, we should not be playing political games with something as serious 
as energy. Um, for the reasons that they cited for the pause, methane emissions uh, for the environment, we've seen uh, that methane emissions are something that this industry is really getting a handle of. You can look at what we're doing at EQT um, to show that methane emissions yeah. will be knocked out of the park. And from an energy security perspective, from an energy pricing perspective, um, you can just we can do all the economic theories we want, or we can look at what's happening in this world today. Record LNG exports and gas prices are below three dollars. What are we talking about? Yeah, and, and Shell, which had its widely watched LNG forecast today, and of course they're Shell, so people say, well, of course they're going to say this. They see natural gas demand globally up fifty five zero percent by twenty forty. So if we're not producing and exporting it, we've got some of the best environmental regs in the world. It's going to go to Russia. It's going to go to Qatar. We're going to enrich Putin because Europe and India and other places are still going to, Japan, are still going to buy a ton of LNG. They, they're either going to get it from us or they're going to get it from Vladimir Putin or somebody else. Yeah, so, and, you know, people talk about, you know, Europe and how they may have their adequate supplies. They're talking about, you know, they're going to have their 10 BCF a day that they need to fill uh, whole. But let's step back and if the world cares about addressing the global emission, the rising global emissions, if the world cares about reducing foreign coal, that would require an incremental 170 BCF a day of natural gas on the world stage. If the world cares about eliminating energy poverty and replacing yeah. biomass, which is the primary fuel, that would require another 120 BCF a day. This market is absolutely massive. The question is, um, who's going to supply that energy? Is it going to be Russia, Iran, and Qatar, or is it going to be the United States? The U.K. fell into recession, high energy costs, energy poverty, a part of that story. I suspect Germany will likely be next. And they've, to your point, I know this is going to sound weird, but they've been saved by two miracle years of weather. It was not very hot in the summer in most of Europe, and it was not very cold in the winter. Outside of that, let's talk about your company. Uh, Stephen Richardson, the analyst at Evercore ISI, called EQT the greatest unresolved debate in natural gas. And I get asked, why why does Toby and his team at EQT keep putting out so much more gas when prices are at a buck fifty, buck sixty? Well, I think people look at EQT as the largest uh, producer of natural gas in the country uh, as the proxy for activity levels. But people need to understand one thing. EQT is a low-cost producer in America. That means we are not the marginal cost of supply. So don't look to us first um, as the one that's reducing activity levels. That being said, uh, we are very cautious and we are watching the market and we will uh, respond uh, if we see pricing continue to drop. But, you know, what we have seen in the, in the past couple of weeks and what we'll continue to see as others uh, announce earnings is that you are seeing operators respond to activity levels. And Sully, just just for your perspective, our view is that uh, operators need around $3, $3.50 to break even and cover their costs. And with gas prices being far below that, you will see activity levels respond. When? Well, it's it's happening right now. Um, so, it, you know, st- stay tuned on this. I think this is one of the reasons why uh, gas prices in, in 2025 are over a dollar higher than where they're at today. Uh, this is really a, a market call for, you know, a short term relief and shutting down production. But that activity is, is still needed, as indicated by the future strip. Toby Rice, EQT. We'll see you in Houston in a couple of weeks, Toby. Thank you. All right. See you, Brian. All right. Well, speaking of energy, today marks the third anniversary of the deadly winter storm called Uri in Texas that left more than 200 dead, more than 5 million without power and crippled the state's power grid. Nearly 70 percent of Texans lost power at some point that week. And the Dallas Fed estimates 
The storm's economic losses range from 80 to 130 billion dollars. Nine months after the storm, federal regulators issued a 300-page report on the blackouts with 28 recommendations aimed at everything from preventing another large-scale power outage to better wind-resisting, cold-resisting their turbines. Energy consultant Doug Lewin breaks them down in his latest newsletter, saying that while the state has made progress on winterizing its power plants, literally some coal stacks froze so solid they could not dig them out, the state's gas supply remains an Achilles heel of the Texas power grid during the winter. I was there, by the way, shortly after. Met a lot of great people. That was a really, really tough time. All right, now let's get Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News Update. Brian, thank you very much. Uh, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken said today that the national security threat that House Intel Chairman Mike Rogers issued a cryptic statement about yesterday is not a, quote, active capability, but that the U.S. is taking it seriously and will have more to say soon. Three sources familiar with the matter tell NBC News that the threat involves a potential space-based nuke being developed by Russia. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said his administration has filed a lawsuit against various social media platforms, including TikTok, Facebook, Snapchat, uh, and others, alleging that they are harmful to the mental health of children and young adults. And it comes after Adams declared social media was an environmental toxin in a speech last month. And Google is teaming up with the Environmental Defense Fund to map methane emissions from oil and gas infrastructure from a satellite in space. The satellite, called MethaneSat, will launch next month to pinpoint the methane sources, and Google will then use their services to create a map to track leaks of that gas. Brian, back to you. I guess social media is the new big tobacco. I think you're right about that. Eric Adams putting that psych degree to work. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much. All right, on deck, freelance platform Upwork taking a hit despite posting an earnings beat. But we're going to look at what is weighing on the shares and more importantly, find out what is going on in the labor market and the gig economy when the CEO joins us next. And of course, during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here is TIAA's chief institutional client officer, Courtney Gibson, sharing her story. 54% of black Americans do not have enough savings to maintain their current standard of living in retirement. So what can we do about that? One, ensure pay parity for black Americans. Two, ensure that they have access to guaranteed lifetime income as a part of their retirement plan. And three, we all know that talent is created equally, but opportunity and access are not. Welcome back. Jobless claims coming in a little bit better than expected this morning, despite the recent spate of layoffs we keep hearing so much about. And perhaps another sign of labor market strength, freelance work platform Upwork reporting better than expected earnings and pretty decent guidance after the bell yesterday. It was enough to garner price target hikes from UBS, RBC and Needham. But the stock is down today after full year revenue guidance came in just a bit light. Let's talk more about that and the overall job market with Hayden Brown, CEO of Upwork. Hayden, thanks for joining us. Uh, what is the state of the freelance slash gig economy that you power so well? How is it doing? 
Thanks, Brian. You know, we're seeing a lot of strength in the business right now. We had an awesome quarter in Q4, you know, powered over a billion dollars in spend from clients to talent on our website, had a 14% year-over-year growth. And what's really exciting is the durable, profitable growth in this business, as we saw record EBITDA margins in the quarter, and definitely have an outlook this year for continued margin expansion as well as growth in the business. So there's a lot of demand for freelance talent, you know, in all categories we serve, which is over 125 categories, and from businesses small and large. You know, in Q4, we saw more than 31 enterprise uh, customers active. You know, those are our new logos from companies like Instacart, NYU, uh, Checkout.com, and others uh, coming into the product because there's a lot of demand right now from companies looking for an efficient, agile way to tap into the freelance economy. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I've looked at your platform for other reasons. Looking at things for website building and things like that for hobbies and projects and stuff. And you know, and you get this. It's kind of cool. You kind of watch this bidding process happen. There's also you're just not for the U.S. I mean, I had people bidding on website stuff from all over the world. Are you are you a good measure of the global economy or global freelance market as well, Hayden? That's right, Brian. We have a truly global ecosystem that has a pulse on you know activity globally from talent and clients, and so. We really get a bird's eye view of what's going on in the markets globally. And I'd say what's really interesting right now, clearly, is the conversation around AI. I mean, technology is changing so rapidly and talent in the freelance economy are always in, in any technology change. We've seen this over decades. Freelancers are the fastest to adopt new technology and to be upskilling into new technology because this is what puts food on the table for them. And uh, the AI shift is no different. You know, technology uh, adoption, our platform is um, widespread around AI. And we saw in our tech, in our platform, 70% growth in the AI vertical in the last quarter, which was the fastest growing category. So uh, companies everywhere are really turning to a global network of independent talent to fuel their AI adoption. You know, whether it's building new apps using mm-hmm. GPT-4 or whether it's other things, this is where it's happening. Your stock soared during COVID and the lockdowns. You're based in San Francisco, so you guys were you guys were shut down for a while. Um, are you counter cyclical, Hayden? In any way? We, in other words, if we did see a slowdown, we talk all these layoffs. Cisco had a bunch yesterday. A lot of San Francisco, PayPal, and others have laid off people. Do you see an uptick in Upwork? You know, what we've seen is uh, a lot of uh, progress in untethering our results from broader macro trends. And I think that was the story actually of our results this past quarter. And uh, the broader secular trend around freelancing, Brian, is incredibly strong. You know, this is something that started before COVID and continues to be accelerating even now, both because of the remote work phenomenon, which is alive and well across you know, the global landscape, and because workers generally are looking for more freedom, flexibility, and autonomy in when, where, and how they work. And that is not going away. In fact, that is accelerating. So I think what we're doing at Upwork is continuing to deliver results irrespective of the broader macro environment. And that's through products that we've built like ads and monetization and other things that really deliver you know, durable results for our customers. And at the same time, the broader freelancing trend is something that is continuing to grow kind of irrespective again of upturns or downturns. Yeah, and, and, and on the San Francisco note, this is kind of a, off topic, but I was recently there and we're all rooting for the city. Are you guys committed to San Francisco, to staying in San Francisco? 
You know, we are a uh, global and distributed business. So while we do have a small office in San Francisco, our model, Brian, has always been a remote work model. So we have a team that is distributed across more than 80 countries globally. And we've actually always had a remote work, work from home model, even before that was popular. So um, while we do love the city of San Francisco, uh, we also love the remote work model that has powered our platform and our usage of independent talent, which is more than two thirds of our workforce uh, since the inception of the business. But you've got that headquarters there in sort of um, South Beach area, but but it's very small is what you're saying in terms of the number of people that are already there. And, and by the way, Hayden, I'm asking every San Francisco based CEO the same question because you do wonder after seeing what I saw a couple months ago, what's going to happen to the city? You know, I think the city is, um, it's, it's a city that's always gone through boom and bust cycles, Brian, and this is, you know, another one of those times, and I'm very confident that the city will recover and find its footing again. I hope you are right. Many people are pulling for one of the most unique and beautiful and, and fun cities in the United States. Hayden, thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, thanks, Brian. Okay, be well. Coming up. Bernie Madoff may be synonymous with Ponzi schemes, as is the guy named Ponzi. But another scammer was revealed just two months after that. And some of his more than 18,000 customers are still missing their money 15 years later. Remember R. Allen Stanford? Scott Cohn does, and he's up with the story next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. 91%. That is the percentage of Bernie Madoff's victims that have been paid back, at least in some capacity, since his conviction. But victims of a different fraud are still waiting for their money 15 years later. Scott Cohn joining us now with the story. Scott, when you brought it up, I was like, oh, my God, R. Allen Stanford. I have not heard that name in a while. I can't believe this. It is still going on, Brian. Uh, Let me take you back to this week and this spot in 2009. Remember, the global financial crisis is already full-blown. And then this, federal agents swarm the offices of the Stanford Financial Group. The SEC charges that it is a global $7 billion Ponzi scheme run by multimillionaire R. Allen Stanford, who sold certificates of deposit from his offshore bank in Antigua touted them as safe investments. Largely sold to retirees like Ed and Beverly Antignola, they put half their retirement funds into Stanford CDs and lost it all. The initial reaction was panic, I think I would say, on both of our parts. I feel like we had been just flat cheated and lied to. I was really disappointed in the people. I just, I, I couldn't believe somebody would do that. And it is still going on 15 years later. Alan Stanford got a life prison sentence. He's at a federal penitentiary in Florida. But from there, acting as his own attorney, he is single-handedly blocking the biggest potential source of recovery for the victims. It's a $1.3 billion settlement with three of the banks who are accused of helping him. He has nothing else to do right now. His cause celebra is trying to make his case for the courts ignoring the fact that what he's doing is denying victims recoveries. 
That's Ralph Janvey. He's the court-appointed receiver who has spent the last 15 years trying to unwind the fraud. In his appeals, uh, Stanford alleges that the whole case against him is invalid because he was sued in Dallas, but he was based here in Houston. The courts have thrown that out again and again. Stanford has until today to file what may be his last appeal to the Supreme Court. If that bank settlement eventually does come through, and it still could be months away, it would basically double the recovery for Stanford victims, but it's still not much. Right now, they've recovered about 25 cents on the dollar. It would go up to about 46 cents with that recovery. But you compare that to the victims of the Madoff scandal, who, as you indicated, Brian, have uh, gotten back about 75 cents on the dollar and counting. This is something that the victims and the receiver are, as you can imagine, not happy about. Scott, is there some kind of difference, maybe legal or otherwise, between the majority of the Stanford victims and the majority of the Madoff victims? Well, yes and no. So the reason that they have not done as well is that SIPC, the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, did not give them coverage where it did give the Madoff victims insurance coverage. What that's meant is that uh, they've basically had to foot the bill, all of the, the Stanford victims, uh, for all of this, this recovery. The reason, SIPC said, was because they bought uh, CDs issued by a foreign bank. Even though those CDs were sold by civic registered brokers, that didn't fly. So that's been a big deal. But the other thing is that, remember, in the Madoff case, the Justice Department went after Madoff's biggest banker, J.P. Morgan Chase, and got a $2.6 billion settlement. This pending settlement with Stanford's banks is the work of the receiver and the Stanford Investment Committee, uh, and, and they have basically had to pay for that. The expenses for the receivership and unwinding all this uh, expected to be about half a billion dollars and counting out of $7 billion uh, of the Ponzi scheme. The lawyers, the lawyers always get the money, don't they, Scott? <laughs> there is that. That's, that's, go, to, go to law. People say, why do you go to law school? Career insurance. Scott Cohn, thank you very much. Unbelievable story. All right, coming up, crypto, connected TVs, and chips. We've got the trade on Coinbase, Roku, and Applied Materials ahead of their reports. Next. Welcome back to The Exchange, Coinbase, Roku, and Applied Materials, all reporting after the bell today. Let's get the news of the trade ahead of those results. Joining us now is Chris Grisanti. He is Chief Equity Strategist, MAI Capital Management. Chris, welcome back. Let's kick it off with Coinbase. Shares have been rocking. They're up nearly 30% the past month, all part of the crypto rally. The street expects Coin to see an uptick in trading volumes, but they're also facing more competition from Robinhood and Fidelity and maybe others and the surge of Bitcoin ETFs. Chris, how would you, would you, play Coinbase? Thanks, Brian. It's good to be back with you again. Not only is the stock up 30% last month, it's up 120% since October. So the numbers this afternoon aren't going to matter as much as the company commentary on exactly what you're talking about. All of a sudden, we're in a new world of Bitcoin ETFs. Now, Bitcoin isn't the only coin that Coinbase services, but it's obviously the biggest. And so I'm nervous about investors who can now go just buy an ETF and don't have to, quote unquote, store coins at Coinbase. What's the business model going forward? And of course, those, there'll be lots of questions about that on the call. The, the stock is still, uh, the company's still showing losses. 
So I, the numbers aren't going to matter as much as the commentary. Sure, Bitcoin is going strong right now, but that doesn't necessarily play into Coinbase earnings. So I, I'd stay away for now. Okay, stay away. By the way, a programming note, don't stay away from this. Coinbase's CFO is going to be on the 4 p.m. show today. That's in the 4 o'clock hour, Alicia Haas. All right. Next up, TV streaming device company Roku. Shares really have done nothing recently. Analysts anticipating a modest slowdown in active accounts, looking for strength in ad spending, as well as Walmart's potential takeover of Vizio. It's competitive space, Chris. Any trade on Roku? It sure is. Well, well, there's interesting things going on there, though, Brian. For, for such a volatile stock, Roku actually has delivered on the subscriber growth lately, growing at around 14, 15 percent year on year each quarter. So I'm expecting that to happen again, and that should calm investors, uh, even though they have a, pro- a stock that's probably doubled over the last year. The second thing is ad revenue. Ad revenue should also be strong. Other competitors have already reported ad revenue is solid there. But you mentioned the big deal, which is Walmart and Vizio are apparently talking. If they get together, Roku is going to be left out in the cold. So investors are thinking maybe there's some M&A activity out there for Roku. That should put a floor under the stock. I think the setup is good going into earnings. Setup good going into earnings. All right. Finally, Applied Materials, better known as AMAT, shares on pace for a third positive week. Chips, I don't know if you heard this, Chris, but some chip stocks have been doing okay lately. Morgan Stanley boosting its price target from 142 to 190, but a slowdown in equipment spending, because that's what they do. They make the machines that make the chips, could pressure AMAT. Do you like AMAT here, Chris? Well, Brian, I'm a little afraid that this is kind of – buy on the rumor, sell on the news. These stocks, uh, all of the equipment makers have been strong into earnings. Lamb Research a couple of weeks ago reported terrific earnings. Stock was up a little, but not a lot, even though it's been a strong stock. AMAT's been a strong stock. It's up twice as much as as the market since October. Um, It's now selling at a 10-year high valuation. So I think expectations are awfully high. Could they exceed those? Sure. But I think it's more likely that they just have solid earnings and the stock may actually be weak on that kind of news. So terrific company would look for a buying opportunity, but don't think we're there right now. I'd I'd wait. Well said and perfect timing because the show's over. Chris Grisanti, MAI Capital. Chris, always a pleasure. Thank you, folks. Thank you for watching. I will see you right back here at 7 p.m. for Last Call. But Power Lunch starts on the other side of this quick break. See you tonight. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 